Now let me ask you the question, you know, if you saw somebody standing on a street corner holding a sign saying the end is near, what would you think? What thoughts come to your mind? Would you think, you know, is this, is this guy a nut? Is he some sort of religious fanatic? Is he trying to call attention to himself? Or is he really serious about that? I mean, the truth is that we become a little bit skeptical about the end of the world. Maybe a little bit less passionate. We have heard pastors talk about this before. We've heard televangelists or Christian authors, you know, for many years say, well, it's going to happen this year, you know. I, I think about in my lifetime, I don't have to go through all of church history to talk about dates that have been set, but even in my lifetime, I remember hearing, you know, 1973, that's going to be it. 1980, Jesus is coming back. 1988, 1989, 2000, Y2K, remember that, all the concerns, or even as recently as 2012 with Harold Camping and talking about, you know, the signs and how he was going to come back. And so we've had all of these times that we've heard and sometimes we get a little bit skeptical. Is the end really near? And if we become skeptical, the world is even more so. I mean, they look at this and they say, hey, Christians have been saying this for 2,000 years. I mean, doesn't that tell you that they were wrong or mistaken or that the Lord is not coming back? And in the world's eyes, there's a lot of people who think that, you know, we don't even really want that. I mean, aren't we getting better as man improves, educates himself, takes control of the world, works on the issues and the problems that are out there? We can do this. Do we really believe that the end is near? that one day Jesus is going to return and life on this planet, as we know it, will change forever. What did Peter mean when he said the end is near? And how should that affect the way that we live? Those are some of the questions we're going to look at today. Let me read for us this text, 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11, and then we'll get into the message. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us today to think about your word, to think deeply to think about how it applies to our life and what this passage means and what a great hope we have that Jesus is coming back. We pray in his name, amen. Well, there are four instructions that Peter gives in this passage that are pretty clearly laid out to us. The first thing he tells us is that we are to be sober-minded. We are to think clearly about life and about eternity. 
Verse 7, again, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. What he is telling us is that a thoughtful Christian understands the times in which we live. Uh, looks at the world around us, looks at what's happening in our world, understands that men and women and boys and girls need to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Understands that we've been given a mission to bring the gospel to the nations, to make disciples of all people, and they understand that life is short. It's very precious. We don't know how much time we will have on this earth. We don't know when Jesus may return or God may call us home. I mean, think about that. How many of you know someone who died as a child? I bet all of us probably can think of someone that we knew who died as a child. Or as a teenager. Or someone in their 20s or 30s. Maybe it was a high school friend of yours. Someone who passed away. I mean, there's two things to think about here with the Lord's coming. There is this day coming when we are going to stand before the Lord to give an account for our life. Peter had said that in verse 5. He said, um, they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge in the living and the dead. There's, that day is coming when we will stand before the Lord. And we don't know whether it's going to be the return of Christ when he steps into history, or today, or tomorrow, if God were to call us home into his presence. There's no guarantee that we will live a long and full life. And when Peter said the end of all things is near, he wasn't giving us an exact date when it was going to happen. In fact, it's Peter who's the one who says in his second letter, 2 Peter 3, 8, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Two thousand years go by, that's like two days to the Lord. That's not a big deal. I mean, God's timetable is not ours. That's what Peter's saying. So don't start bringing out your calendar and think, well, you know, hey, the Lord's pretty slow about this. Peter said, you know, there are going to be people who are going to say that. They're going to say the Lord's slow about his promise or that Jesus isn't coming back because, hey, it's been 2,000 years. And Peter understood that. And so he kind of preemptively you know, gives an answer for that by saying that God's timetable is not like ours. When Peter said the end is near, he was talking like a prophet would. He is telling us that the next big event in God's plan of salvation history is the return of Christ. The next big thing that we are looking for. It's just like the prophets in the Old Testament were looking forward to the first coming of Christ and wondering when's the Messiah going to come and what will be the circumstances around that and when's it going to happen and who will it be. And so we are looking forward to this second coming of Christ. When he returns, there will be these events that will occur in the future. There will be a rapture of the church. There will be a generation of believers that will not taste death in the same way that most of us will. Because Jesus Christ will return and they will be caught up to meet him in the air. There will be a period of great tribulation on the earth, a period of intense suffering before Christ comes to establish his kingdom on earth. There will be an antichrist who will rise to power. There will be the gathering of the nations around Israel and Jerusalem. 
And one day Christ will return to overthrow his enemies and to establish his kingdom on the earth. You can read all about it in the Scriptures. You can look at the book of Revelation and see what God says there. So the sober-minded Christian is serious about life. He thinks clearly. He doesn't panic in a crisis. He is self-controlled. And he has learned to discipline his life, especially for the purpose of prayer. I mean, what should we do when it looks like the world is falling apart? Or what should we do when we see things that are crises like what's going on in Ukraine? We pray. We watch and we pray. The most important thing we can do is to lift up these concerns before God's throne. But that's not the only thing we do. Christians aren't to pray and then be passive and do nothing. We are to pray and then act as God leads us in these different areas that he's called us to. We pray for God's will. We pray that God would give us the strength to stand firm. We watch and pray. Now, I can't help but think that Peter is reflecting on his own experience here with Christ and thinking about his own failure. In Matthew 26, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he knew what was to come, the cross that was before him, he asked the disciples to watch and pray. He came back and they were asleep. He roused them and he said, you know, could you not wait with me one hour? Could you not, you know? And he called them to pray again and he goes, he comes back and they are asleep again. Three times. He calls them to watch and pray and they fall asleep. And Jesus said, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And one of the great struggles that we face in this area is with our flesh. We struggle with prayer at times. We struggle to take the time that we should to pray. And there are times in our life when we need to just turn off the TV or stop playing the video games or whatever it is that we do and take the time to pray. There's an interesting but sad story that came out of a a book. Thomas Costain wrote a history called The Three Edwards. And it was a story about... Reynald III, who was a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. And Reynald was grossly overweight, so much that his, uh, the people who knew him called him by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which meant fat. And after a violent quarrel, Reynald's younger brother, Edward, took control of the throne. He led this revolt against him, and he had Reynald... put into a room. He did not kill him. He put him into a room that had normal doors and windows in it, but because of Reynold's size, he could not fit through a door that would be normal. And his brother said to him that he could regain his title and his property as soon as he was able to leave the room. It wouldn't have been difficult for most people to do that, but because of his size... He would need to lose weight if he were to gain his freedom. Edward knew his older brother, and each day he sent a variety of delicious foods to him, and instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynald grew fatter. Some people thought that Duke Edward was being cruel with his brother, and he had a ready answer. He said, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. 
And Reynolds stayed in that room for 10 years until his brother Edward died in battle and Reynold was released. You know, I think about that. That's such a sad story of what was going on there, but it is an illustration of sometimes we can know the thing that we should do and we don't do it because we follow the lust of the flesh or we follow the things that are easy or the things that are attractive or seem comfortable. And God calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him to do what is going to be the best spiritually. And there are times when, frankly, we just need to discipline ourselves for the purpose of prayer or to spend time with God and His Word or to reach out and minister to others. And that's what Peter is calling us to do in this passage, to be clear-minded, to be self-controlled so that we can pray and do these other things that he is instructing us to do. The second thing he calls us to do is to love one another. In verse uh, 8 here, he says, "Love Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. The words above all stress how important this command is. And we've heard it before. This is a command that's repeated frequently in the Scripture. The NIV has the phrase love one another 11 times. King James Version has it 12 times. But the command to love shows up more often than that all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are to love one another. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, And we're to demonstrate that not just with words but in deeds. In fact, love is the mark of a Christian. Jesus was the one who said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And when Peter says here that love covers over a multitude of sins, he's not talking about atonement. He's not saying that our love for someone else covers over and atones for that sin. That's not his point. What Peter is saying here is that when we love one another, what happens within the body of Christ or in our relationships is that there is forgiveness. We forgive one another. When we love one another, that love is patient. That love is kind. That love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, but it really seeks the best for the other person. It believes the best about them. It's willing to give grace, and we need that because we need to receive grace for one another. And that love shows the world what Christ is like. I mean, that love strives for unity in the body of Christ. It works together. It cares about one another. And when people see that, Jesus said, they'll know that you are my disciples. We are to love each other deeply, fervently, not just with words, but with actions, and do it from the heart. There's a woman named Patty Miller who worked in a hospital emergency room for many years. And she said in those five years that she was there that her heart kind of became insensitive to the needs of people that came in. It was maybe a little bit of self-protection because of so many horrific things that she saw that she began to kind of deaden her heart. And one day she was there, and it was the middle of the night, and a woman, a mother, was sitting before her, and her daughter had been brought in because her daughter had tried to commit suicide. She had taken an overdose of medication. 
And the police had woken up this woman in the middle of the night, and she was there, and, you know, Patty's trying to do the intake for admissions and get the information down, and this woman is just slow. She is not thinking real clearly, you know. She's trying to get the information out, and Patricia, she said she was becoming impatient. Hurry up. That's what she's thinking. Can you get this information right? You know, as she slowly gave it to me, and my impatience was raw as I finished the report, and then I jumped up to the copy machine to copy the medical cards. And she said, that's when God stopped me. And it was like he tapped me on the shoulder, and he spoke to me, and he said, you didn't even look at her. You didn't even look at her. And she said, I felt his grief for her and for her daughter. And I looked over at this woman who was sitting there, and I bowed my head, and I said, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. She said, I sat down in front of this distraught woman, and I covered her hands with mine, and I looked into her eyes, and I said, I'm sorry. I care about you. Don't give up. Don't give up. And this woman wept and wept and she poured out her heart and she shared how hard it had been for her as a single mom trying to raise a rebellious daughter and all the struggles that they went through and patty said my attitude changed that night jesus came right into the workplace in spite of rules that are designed to kind of you know keep you on a more distant relationship or to take the information down he came that night to set me free and to show me something about what compassion is really like. You know, sometimes we can be like that. We can go through the motions of things or we can, you know, hear about other people's concerns and we say we will pray. But God is calling us to do more than that too, to enter in with them, to empathize with them, to love them to share in their hurt and help them lift up their burdens. Loving one another is putting 1 Corinthians 13 into action. The third thing that Peter instructs us to do is to practice hospitality. Hospitality has to do with taking in believers and providing them with food and lodging. It's an example of a way in which we can show love. And so Peter says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, without complaining. In Peter's day, that was very important because you didn't have motels and restaurants like we do, or the places where you could stay, those inns, were not always very good places. They were not clean or safe. And hospitality was something that believers could do for one another. In fact, it was one of the qualifications for being a pastor or elder in the church was that you needed to be a person who practiced hospitality. But this instruction here isn't just for those leaders. It's for everyone to offer hospitality. And Peter understands that there's a cost involved. I mean, when you open your home, you provide a meal, you provide lodging, uh, you are giving up some of your privacy, you're giving up some of your time, and you are expending some of your resources for that. There were times when they would host traveling missionaries just like Paul and Peter, and it was expected that you would provide a place for them to stay on their visits or their journeys. 
And Peter adds this phrase, do it without grumbling. He's not saying, you know, like, do it, and even if you don't like it, you know, just do it. But he's saying, no, be gracious, be generous. And that's really what the early church did. I mean, you can look at passages like Acts chapter 2, where you see this picture of the early church and how they opened their homes to one another. They shared their resources with one another. They looked out for each other. That's how the church grew. And the Lord added to their numbers daily. In Acts chapter 16, we read how Lydia was a woman from Thyatira, and she opened her home to the apostles, to Paul and Silas, and to the believers in Philippi. And she hosted a church in her home. And and that, again, was to be expected in that time, that there would be these house churches and believers were to care for one another and share meals together. Hospitality is a wonderful gift that is still needed today. And when that happens in the church, it's the difference between people coming on a Sunday morning and being friendly and people who feel like they are making friends. You're eating together. You're breaking bread together. And it may be in your home or it may be that you go out together to a restaurant for a meal, but you're taking the initiative to meet with others and to build those relationships. Several years ago now, Karen Maines wrote a book called Open Heart, Open Home. And she talked about the difference between hospitality and entertaining. There's a difference between those two. And she made this point. She said, you know, entertaining kind of says, I want to impress you. You know, it says, uh, I want to impress you with my home or my clever decorating or my cooking. Whereas hospitality seeks to minister and says, this home is a gift from my master. I use it as he desires. Hospitality aims to serve. Another point she made was how entertaining tends to put things before people. As soon as I get the house finished or the living room decorated or my house cleaning done, well, then I'll start inviting somebody over. But hospitality puts people first. No furniture? Well, we'll eat on the floor. We can sit there. Or the decorating's not done? Well, that's fine. Come on over. Or the house is a mess? Your friends. Come home with us. And thirdly, she said, entertaining subtly declares this home is mine. It's an expression of my personality. Look, please, and admire. But on the other hand, hospitality whispers, what's mine is yours. Come and share it with me. You know, I'd like you to think about that and to encourage you to open up your homes and your hearts to one another in the body of Christ, with neighbors, with people around you that God is bringing into your life that you might build a relationship with them or share the gospel or have an opportunity to get to know them better. And fourthly, Peter says that we are to use our gifts to glorify God, and we see that in verses 10 and 11. He says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Each one. We have all been given a spiritual gift, and they're not the same. You know, we don't all have the same gift. Everyone's gift is different, but all of them are necessary in the body of Christ. And we are to use those gifts to serve one another. That's the whole point, to be faithful in serving. So when we take a responsibility in the body of Christ to serve in an area, we're to do that well as unto the Lord. 
We're to be faithful in that, and we are consistent in our service. If we can't make it or we can't show up, we don't just blow it off. We call somebody and we tell them. And we say, you know what, something came up today where I can't, or we find somebody to replace, or we, we do those things that are courteous because we do that for the Lord, that these are opportunities to serve Him and to serve one another in the body of Christ. And when we work together with each one doing their part, the church grows, God is glorified, He gets the honor, and people take notice. It was interesting, one day I was at the coffee shop and a woman made this comment to me. She had been talking with friends from the community and and they just sort of made this observation. I share it as a secondhand compliment to you. She said, you have a lot of nice people at your church. I think that speaks well. I think we do and I think people need to understand that's because of Christ. But it shows how people are observing your character, your humility, your love, your generosity, your kindness. And it can be in a number of different ways. The way that you gather around somebody who has a medical need, the way you gather around people that are going through grief, the way that you help to serve or bring over meals, or the way that you even speak to one another. The way you run your business in the community. All of those things are a witness for Christ. And we use those gifts to serve Him. If your gifts are verbal, if they are things like teaching, preaching, evangelism, and encouragement, do it as speaking the very words of God. If your gifts are uh, serving, working with your hands, things like helping, or if it's like giving or hospitality or showing mercy or administration or working on the facilities, then do it with a strength God provides that in all things he may be praised. If you don't know what your gift is or where you could serve, talk with us and we'd love to help you discover that as well. Well, let me wrap this up. Do you see what God is saying here to the church through Peter? The church in their days experiencing persecution, their suffering. They have questions about how to respond to the world around them, just like we may have questions about how are we to respond to the world in which we live. And Peter is being honest, and he's saying life in this world isn't going to be easy. There are going to be trials and suffering. There will be persecutions. There will be ungodliness. But the answer isn't to circle the wagons and then to stay at home. The answer is to live for Christ, to live with wisdom and passion, to go into the world, to go and make disciples and be that salt and light. Be sober-minded and pray. Love one another deeply from the heart. Practice hospitality. Open your heart and your home. And use your gifts to serve one another and glorify Christ. Let's pray. Father, you know our heart, and you know which one of those areas that we need to work on. Maybe there's some work that needs to be done in all four, or maybe in particular there's one of those that you want us to take this week, and to think about what we could do differently. Father, help us to be your church. Help us to be that witness for Christ and to love one another in our relationships here, but also to love our neighbor, the people around us. And we do that to honor you 
In your name we pray, amen. There's no closing song today, so I'd ask you just to stand, stand for the benediction. I'm going to read for us uh, from Hebrews chapter 13. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.